Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. Here we are at the week before the actual moment of the coming in the flesh of the invisible God. In other words, the nativity of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, also known in the Eastern churches as the divine condescension, the kenosis, a Greek word which means emptying or self-emptying. It is the birth of Jesus Christ. All those phrases are very appropriate because they have to do with what this event really is about. It is about God's self-emptying. It is about God's incarnation, the invisible God becoming visible, condescending, the divine condescension. He who is the creator becomes his own creation while remaining the creator. This is a tremendous moment, a tremendous event. It is the great mystery, the one great mystery from which everything else flows the way that we ought to see life, this sacramental vision, the way to interface with all of life, the way to see human beings. That's what the joy and the peace on earth, it's supposed to be from the fact that Jesus Christ, God himself, lowered himself and made an action of love so profound we can't possibly describe it. It's a mystery to be held and to be lived. And the great prophets predicted this, and the most common analogy they use to predict this great event, this great act of love, this great self-emptying, this pouring out of love, the analogy they used most commonly, most beautifully, most poetically, was one of nuptials of a marriage between God and Israel, and between God and ourselves come to perfection in the church as the bride of Christ. So great a mystery, you just can't plunge right into. That's a big mistake of our culture. We tend to plunge into something and then go cold turkey. So oftentimes the hymns you hear on the radio, the Christmas carols and so on, will end on December 26th. I always amazed at that. They begin sometimes as early as October, and then they end on December 26th. And people will ask you, you know, you go to a bank or store, you run into people, well, how was your Christmas? They speak in the past tense when it's actually just unfolding. Yes, it goes on technically for 12 days, but actually it goes on forever. 
It was the great mystery revealed, hidden from all times and now revealed for all times. We have to lead up to that. We just can't charge into it. So in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, there are actually two Sundays dedicated to this build-up to the great mystery, the incarnation. And it makes sense if you think about what you do around these holy days. You invite people over, right? You may reminisce about Christmas's past and some of the individuals that maybe aren't with us anymore have passed on. It's a time of getting together. That's not the purpose of it, but it's part of it. Well, it's a similar thing with Jesus Christ. What we do is we get the family together in two ways, in two consecutive Sundays in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. The first one is two Sundays prior to Christmas Day. It's called the Sunday of the Holy Forefathers, the Patriarchs. In other words, this is where we honor people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah, Abraham. In fact, one of our prayers during the morning prayer service says this, let us praise Adam, Abel, Seth, and Enos, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Job, and Aaron, Eleazar, Joshua, Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, David, and Solomon. Let us all celebrate the memory of the venerable forefathers. Let us praise their holy and God-pleasing lives for which they are exalted. See, the church in its liturgy is very, very biblical. What we do as we approach the coming of Christ is we look back on the family, on how Christ got here, his family lineage, both physically but also according to the covenant, going all the way back to, as we mentioned here, Abraham and Noah, all the prefigurements for Christ. We look back in them. Because you see, the New Testament and the coming of Christ, which of course begins the New Testament, those events in the life of Christ, his very incarnation, are all prefigured in the Old Testament figures. So this is a very biblical time, and it's really a lot of fun and very insightful to go back and read the prophets as we do during the liturgies, both East and West at this time of year, the prophet Isaiah and Micah, where they predicted the coming of Christ. It's good to see these foreshadowings, these types of the archetype, Christ being the archetype, and the types are those things that are made after the archetype or the model. All these figures from the Old Testament are all in some way types of Christ. And as we look at the two Sundays before Christmas, we're looking at these, in a sense, Christ's spiritual heritage. And the following Sunday, we're going to look at his actual lineage, his physical heritage. In other words, his actual family. Now, also in the prayer services at this time, you can see some of the other references to the Old Testament and how it foreshadows Christ. For example, in the evening prayer, the Vesper service for the second Sunday before the birth of Christ, we pray this prayer. The three holy youths were refreshed by the Holy Spirit when they walked in the fire as though in a cool place. In them, the Trinity and the incarnation of Christ were prefigured in a mystical manner. By the wisdom and faith, they overcame the power of fire. As for the just Daniel, he stopped the mouths of lions. Through their intercession, we beseech you, O Savior and lover of mankind, protect us from eternal fire. Make us worthy of your heavenly kingdom. It's interesting that this image, you know, from the book of Daniel, the three ewes in the fiery furnace, remember, they were punished for not bowing down to the pagan idol. And when they went into the furnace, they sang a hymn to God and danced through the fires. Well, it says here in the liturgical text that this was a prefigurement in a mystical manner of the Trinity, because there were three youths 
and the incarnation of Christ. In other words, Christ, God, God's presence coming into nature. God was present in the form of these three youths who went into the fire but were not consumed. You see, anytime we have in the Bible something that seems to bend or even transcend the laws of nature that God himself created, we always see in that a prefigurement of Christ. We see also a prefigurement of Christ whenever we see something happening within something else and that first thing not being affected, such as the burning bush. The bush was on fire. Remember the bush in which God himself appeared to Moses, spoke to Moses of the burning bush? The bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. Well, here we have the three youths who were dancing through the fire, yet not consumed. In other words, something powerful does not consume something less powerful. It's miraculous. It's a bending of the laws of nature. This is what happened at the birth, the incarnation of Christ. We have God himself entering into the Virgin Mary. God, imagine the uncontainable God. Remember in the Old Testament, people could not look at God in the face. They would be just destroyed, just vaporized. God covered Moses' face when God passed by. So Moses could behold his glory, but not his face. So here the Virgin Mary has this uncontainable God whom no one could see face to face, who is too powerful to be in his presence. She contains him, the infinite uncontainable God within her very womb, and yet she is not consumed. She remains a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. So just like the three use in the fiery furnace, or God speaking in the burning bush to Moses. We have here a bending of a law of nature where something should have been consumed, something was impossible, yet it transcended nature. Let's look at a few other texts. When the three holy youths stood in the flaming furnace, as if covered with dew, they mystically prefigured your coming from the virgin, giving light to us without being consumed." And Daniel, the just and wondrous prophet, clearly saw in a vision your second divine coming. He said, I saw thrones set up and the judge seated and the river of fire flowing in his presence. Through their intercession, deliver us from this fire, O Lord. Now see, interesting, here we have, as I mentioned earlier, the prefigurement of the Virgin Mary and Christ. It says, they mystically prefigured your coming from the Virgin, giving light to us without being consumed. But also, it makes reference to the eschaton, to the second coming. Now, here you see, even in the Christmas event, through the liturgy of the church, the ingeniousness of the liturgy of the church, what we're seeing is already the purpose for the coming of Christ. He came not just to be a baby in a manger. That was very much a part of it. But he comes for a purpose, to save us, to redeem us. And so, it says here, that Daniel, it makes reference to Daniel, seeing a prophetic eschatological vision, the vision of your second divine coming. This was prefigured by Daniel, and it is referred to here in a reference to the nativity of Christ. When we return, we're going to look more at some of the Old Testament prefigurements of the coming of Christ as we gather the family together, the family of Christ, in these Sundays before the nativity. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. 
in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Welcome to a St. Nicholas Minute. Why do people call St. Nicholas Santa Claus anyway? Well, the people of Holland have always had a special fondness for St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus as they call me. In fact, to this very day, I still arrive to deliver gifts on St. Nicholas Eve, that's December 5th, dressed as a Roman Rite Bishop and riding my white horse, Amerigo. Anyway, in the 16th century, when Dutch settlers came to the New World, they brought their Santa Claus tradition with them to a place called New Amsterdam. That's modern New York City. And so, when the English-speaking settlers arrived, they began to mispronounce my Dutch name of Sinterklaas, which means, of course, St. Nicholas, and they began to call me Santa Claus. So Santa Claus really means St. Nicholas. But no matter what I'm called by name, my spirit is still the same. I'm filled with the joy that flows from the Christmas proclamation, Christ is born, glorify him. (laughs) You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. This is Bold Talk with Father Thomas Loyal. We live in strange times, full of contradictions, many of which we create and then force upon ourselves. An example. To hear the rest of this and other Bold Talks with Father Thomas Loya, visit TaborLife.org and go to the main menu and click subscribe. 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 Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. As you look at these marvelous liturgical texts during the two Sundays prior to Christmas in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, we see so much fascination, so much joy, so much integration with the Scripture, the Old and New Testament. But also, I just want to remind you, we are still in the fasting period, the Advent period, or Philip's fast, as we call it in the Eastern churches. And that means no meat or dairy products on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We pull back so as to open up for something better, for more prayer, more silence, more charity. So just a reminder as we look towards the building joy of this season until we get to that moment when the great mystery is finally revealed. Now, if you look at the Sunday just before Christmas, this Sunday is called the Sunday of the Forefathers of Christ. Not so much just the patriarchs, but now the whole family lineage of Christ from Adam all the way to Joseph. And we read that scripture of Jesus' genealogy from Matthew's gospel, fascinating lineage. It sounds kind of boring in one sense. I remember growing up as a kid, I used to wonder, why they read this thing? It's this person begat that person. This person begat that person. It was begat, 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 begat. And these strange names. Some of them I recognized in the Bible, but some of them I did not. Well, as I grew up, I learned that this is a very significant gospel. Because what it's showing is part of the miracle of the Incarnation, which is part of the miracle of the season, that God would enter into our time and space, our reality. He just wouldn't sort of beam aboard, like remember the old Star Trek programs? He just wouldn't sort of beam aboard and appear. He chose to be so incarnational that he would actually appear through human lineage and actually through events that would carry on that lineage and through persons who would be very unlikely 
people who were not even part of the royal lineage of Christ. People came into people came into existence even through things like incest or adultery. It's right. It's in there that God would come through even human imperfection and human sin. Why would God do that? Well, that's part of the miracle of this incarnational, this great mystery. After all, God was coming into the darkness to be the light. He was coming to show that he is the God of all, even of that which is dark or imperfect or evil. That's the whole great joy, the great miracle, this great mystery that God comes to redeem everything and everybody. That The last word on things is not darkness. It is not sin. And we need to remember that, especially in the dark moments of our lives, and not fear. God is the God of all things, even the worst things. He still has the last word. During the Matin service for the Sunday before Nativity, we have certain verses such as this, the sublime birth of Christ in the flesh manifests the teachings of the law. Those who preach the gospel of grace before the law showed by their faith that they are above the law. Therefore, they announce beforehand to those in Hades that your birth delivers us from death because of your resurrection, O Lord, glory to you. Now, another interesting allusion here in the liturgical text. Here we have Christ just being born, and there's a mention of the resurrection. Just as we saw in the text for the previous Sunday, there was allusion to the second coming, the last judgment, even at Christmas time. So too now in the liturgical text, there is allusion now to the resurrection of Christ. In the icon of the nativity, the great mystery, the divine condescension, the great self-emptying, the incarnation, see all those phrases we can use to describe this birth of Christ. In that icon, in the very center you will see the Christ child in what appears to be swaddling clothes. But if you look again, you'll see that those swaddling clothes are actually burial wrappings, like as if he was mummified. And he lays in a manger, which is actually a sarcophagus. Looks like a tomb. And he's set against the darkness of the interior of the cave. Now, all this is alluding to the fact that he will be buried in a cave when he dies, taken from the cross, buried in a cave, and he will rise again. So, already in the nativity icon, liturgical text, we have allusions not just to the birth of Christ as part of it, but to his resurrection and to the eschaton. So, it's really a very integrated, very ingenious presentation that the church does through its liturgy and iconography of the deep, comprehensive meaning of this season, of this great, great mystery. Here's a few other fascinating texts, and, and these we are praying around December 20th, which is also the feast of the priest Martyr Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, in the liturgical calendar of the Byzantine Church. These texts really convey the true Christmas this is what they say. O faithful, let us celebrate beforehand the nativity of Christ. Let us raise up our minds to Bethlehem, and we shall be raised up in spirit. We shall meditate upon the virgin who is on the way to the cave to give birth to the Lord of all and our God. Joseph saw the magnitude of Christ's miracles, for he lowered himself to be revealed as a man and to be wrapped in swaddling clothes as an infant. 
Joseph understood from the events that Jesus was the true God who grants mercy to our souls. You notice what we said there. O faithful, let us celebrate beforehand the nativity of Christ. Let us raise up our minds to Bethlehem, and we shall be raised up in spirit. Okay, now here is the point of this season. To have our minds elevated and to have our spirit raised up so that our attitude becomes that of the mystery itself, incarnational, positive, holy, bright, full of joy. Even though we have our tough down moments, let's face it, if somebody steps on your toe, you're going to say, ouch. But that ouch should be just for a while. You don't carry on a grudge. You don't talk about how terrible life is. You don't look at just your pain and perseverate over all that. You say, ouch, we're allowed to have our down moments, but they should be only moments because the overriding ethos of our lives should be one that is that of Christmas. That's why I say Christmas does not end on December 26th. It just starts to unfold on December 25th, and it never stops unfolding. In fact, what you should do is you should ask somebody one day around, let's pick a date, like uh, July 23rd, ask somebody, how's your Christmas? (laughs) They'll look at you very strangely, but we should still say it's going very well. In other words, how is the unfolding of this great mystery in your life months after the decorations are taken down and there isn't the get-together and the parting and the food and the celebration and the lights and so on, as nice as all that is, we're months away from that. Did it matter that that happened? Did it matter that God became incarnate? Did it matter that we celebrated that? We entered into that through, yes, the food, the celebrations, the Christmas tree, the lights, the decorations, hopefully above all, our prayer in church, our attendance at the services. But did it matter? Does it matter? Does it affect how we look at life? Or do we just go back to being the same person? If we're the same person on December 26th as if we were on December 25th, then we really have not celebrated Christmas. Another text. O faithful, let us celebrate beforehand the nativity of Christ. Let us raise up our minds in Bethlehem, and we shall be raised up in spirit. We shall gaze upon the 